Thanks, David. You look a bit different than the normal Sunday night crowd. It's the, the science crowds in tonight. Um, you look good. It's okay. Not a bad thing. Um, let, let, me, let me just get going here. David's described how we're going to go, so feel free to to gather questions and comments as I uh, try to present a, a provisional uh, something to, to get us going and get us thinking. Christianity has no place in the modern world. Uh, that's the contention of a significant number of best-selling authors. Uh, so you've heard of Richard Dawkins, who's been working hard in recent years uh, to show us our God delusion. Uh, the book that's been uh, probably the, the one uh, uh, of the ones that he's written that's most uh, caught the, the public imagination. You may also have heard of uh, Daniel Bennett or Sam Harris, writers who assume that science in general and evolutionary science in particular has just made belief in God unnecessary and obsolete. Sometimes these topics come and go quite quickly. The, the big questions of yesterday become nobody's questions uh, for today. But, but this question seems to be very much alive still um, and right now. This is the current issue of New Scientist, uh, published on the 17th of March. And it's the God issue. Uh, so someone in church who... who Reads New Scientist was telling me this is the first time they can remember ever uh, seeing a God issue or that topic being given such a profile. So this is a, a topic that's not going away. It's, it's very much alive just at the moment. The overall conclusion in the New Science editorial is that religious claims still wither under rational scrutiny. But the contributors uh, to the magazine are beginning to think that there is a, some sort of God-shaped space in our minds and that it's worthy of some scientific investigation. In The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins argues that you cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and still hold religious beliefs. Just not possible. And to support that thesis, he points out uh, a 1998 study showing that only 7% of American scientists in the National Academy of the Sciences believe in a personal God. Uh, Dawkins presents this as, as proof that the more intelligent, rational, and scientifically minded we are, the less likely or able we are to believe in God. And of course, growing up in this kind of environment has a very real impact for, for people even beyond uh, scientists for how they think about Christian faith. So one person uh, might say, my scientific training uh, makes it impossible for me to take seriously the, the teachings of Christianity. Uh, since I believe in evolution, I can't accept the Bible's pre-scientific ideas about the origin of life. Another person might point at the miracles uh, they're recorded in the Bible and claim that they simply couldn't have happened. So our question this evening is whether Dawkins uh, and the others like him are right. Has science disproved uh, Christian beliefs? 
must we choose between thinking scientifically and belief in, in God? This evening I'm going to deal with that question by looking at, at three particular reasons why we're inclined to think that science uh, may have disproved Christianity. First of all, the miracle claims of Christianity. Uh, second, the idea that science in general is in conflict with Christianity. And then thirdly, the biblical account of creation, uh, which uh, can seem very problematic to scientific people. So first of all, the miracles. The miracles, um, not only in Christianity, but in, in many of the major religions, uh, are a very big stumbling block to scientifically minded people. And before I say, well, Christianity is not that bad because there's not that many miracles in it, I have to say the opposite. Christianity depends on its miraculous claims. Uh, they're not incidental. They're not on the, the fringe of Christian belief. Each Christian time, each Christmas time, we celebrate the miracle that we believe God came uh, in the shape of a, a baby born in Bethlehem and lived among us. And at Easter time, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to gather here to celebrate the resurrection of a person who was dead. A miracle of, of resurrection. And apart from those very fundamental ones, the, the New Testament, the Gospels, are full of accounts of miracles that Jesus performed. But I don't know how much you know about this, but, but even beyond Jesus himself, his followers are recorded often as having performed miracles. So the New Testament doesn't shy away in any way uh, from miraculous claims. Scientific mistrust of the Bible began with the, the Enlightenment belief that, that miracles just can't be reconciled to a modern, rational view of the world. Uh, and this became an almost uh, universal presupposition for scientific inquiry. Scholars turned to the Bible and they said that the, Bible, the biblical accounts can't be reliable because they talk about miracles. And the premise behind the claim is that science has proven that there is no such thing as miracle. Actually, that's something that science will never prove because it's unable to prove a statement like that. Science by its nature is an exploration of the laws of nature. It's equipped only to test for natural causes and can't speak for causes beyond nature. Science can't rule out other causes that might possibly exist. How exactly would science rule out supernatural causes? What would our scientific experiment be? There is no experimental model for testing the statement that no supernatural cause for any natural phenomenon is possible. So to say that miracles can't exist <coughs> isn't a scientific finding. It's a philosophical presupposition. It's a decision that we make and a leap of faith that we take. We're dealing here this evening with the relationship between science and Christianity. So, so that discussion about miracles takes a particular form. The general assertion that miracles can't happen 
takes a more specific form with the related assertion that there can't be a God who does miracles. I was chatting to a member of our congregation this week uh, as I was uh, preparing to, to speak here this evening, and they told me of their experience of being at a public science lecture where the speaker says there can't be anybody here who believes in God. And for that uh, lecture, the, the person giving that lecture, that speaker, that was entirely self-evident. There can't be such a God and there can't be any intelligent people who, who would believe that there is. Friends, if, as the Bible contends and as Christians believe, there is a creator God, then there's nothing illogical at all about the possibility of miracles. If God created everything out of nothing, I, to be quite honest, I think that's the biggest miracle of all, to, to take nothing and make it into something, seems to me to be a miracle just off the scale with, with any others. If God created everything out of nothing, then it's hardly going to trouble him to rearrange the furniture of the universe once in a while uh, when, it, when it suits him to do so. If you want to be sure that miracles couldn't possibly happen, then you need to be sure beyond any possibility of a doubt that God doesn't exist. And that's going to take a leap of faith. Science will never help you to prove or disprove the, the existence of God. So that's a first area uh, where people have struggled, uh, the area of the miraculous. There's a second reason why people think that science has disproved Christianity. And that's namely that they believe that there's a war going on between science and religion and that science has won. I think it's probably characterized in these terms because the media needs, needs stories. Uh, they need to present life with protagonists and antagonists, people who are always and constantly at war with each other. So we are constantly told about battles between secular and religious people over the teaching of evolution in schools, over stem cell research, in vitro fertilization, lots of other areas of science and medicine. Those stories make the headlines areas of agreement between religious people and scientists don't sell newspapers. These battles, when they're presented to us constantly, they give credibility to the claims of the likes of, of Dawkins, uh, Harris, and so on, that you have to be an either-or. You have to be either a scientific person and a rational person or a religious person, but never these two shall meet. Dr. Tim Keller, the, the minister who, who wrote the book that we're using for this series, um, Minister of Manhattan, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, he said that in his parish there, maybe it's the kind of parish that it is, he has a lot of opportunity to talk to scientifically minded people. And, and he finds almost without fail that they're very wary about orthodox Christian belief. In his book, The Reason for God, he says, one young student said to me, the Bible denies evolution, which most educated people accept. It, bothered me, it bothers me terribly that so many Christians, 
because of their belief in the Bible, can take such an unscientific mindset. Keller says he, he finds that concern that this young man expressed quite understandable. But he records for us his response. He says, evolutionary science assumes that more complex life forms evolve from less complex forms through a process of natural selection. Many Christians believe that God brought, this, brought about life in this way. For example, the Catholic Church, the largest church in the world, has made official pronouncements supporting evolution as being compatible with Christian faith. However, many Christians believe in evolution as a process without believing in philosophical naturalism. This is the view that everything has a natural cause and that organic life is solely the product of random forces governed by no one. So Keller goes on to explain the next unwarranted step that so often seems to be taken. He says, when evolution is turned into an all-encompassing theory explaining absolutely everything that we believe, feel, and do as the product of natural selection, then we're not in the arena of science, but of philosophy. Richard Dawkins argues that you can't have one without the other. You cannot believe in evolution as a biological mechanism without also believing in philosophical naturalism. But why would that be? In the same year that Dawkins published The God Delusion, Francis Collins published a book called The Language of God. He's an eminent research scientist. He's head of the Human Genome Project. And he believes in evolutionary science. He critiques the intelligent design movement. He denies the transmutation of species, or sorry, that denies the transmutations of species. However, and this, this is fascinating for me, Collins believes that the fine-tuning, the beauty and the order of nature nevertheless point to a divine creator. So here we have the very person that Dawkins says can't exist, a person who believes uh, firmly in evolution as a biological process, but who completely rejects philosophical naturalism. And Collins isn't alone in this. I, I talked in my introduction about Dawkins' argument that you can't be an intelligent uh, scientific thinker and hold religious beliefs, but, but there are other examples. Uh, so Stephen Jay Gould, the late Harvard scientist and evolutionist, who, who called himself an atheist, he could not conclude with Darwin that science necessarily clashed with Christian faith. He wrote this. Either half my colleagues are enormously stupid, or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs, and equally compatible with atheism. By the way, when Gould talked about half his colleagues, I don't think he was strictly saying that 50% of his scientific colleagues uh, believed in a creator God. I think he was simply making the case that a, a substantial number of, of scientific thinkers, respected colleagues, had traditional beliefs about God. 
And so it turns out that even atheists believe that Richard Dawkins is wrong and that science can't explain everything and that scientific thought can be compatible with religious belief. So even though we are presented constantly with this battle between science and religion, we shouldn't imagine that we have to choose between one or the other. That if you want to become a Christian, you have to leave behind everything that you've ever believed of a scientific nature. There is no necessary conflict between science and faith. Let's look quickly at a third reason why people think science has disproved Christianity. Namely, they believe that science undermines the biblical account of creation. They believe that evolutionary science undermines uh, what the Bible says in, say, Genesis 1 and 2. And if the two collide, then so much the worse for the biblical record. Actually, that's, that's just not the case. There is no head-on collision. Evolutionary science doesn't undermine the biblical account of creation. We've talked a lot here this evening so far about science and evolutionary science in particular. The relationship of science with the Bible hinges not only on our understanding of the science, but also in how we interpret the key biblical passages such as Genesis 1. This is the part of the talk I was looking forward to. I'm happier on this ground. Flick open Genesis 1 for me if you, if you would. If, yeah, there are Bibles there in the pews if you aren't normally here with us. Uh, there should be one nearby you. Let's think about how this passage intersects with our modern scientific understandings of how the world came into being. Uh, I'll read for you the opening few verses just to get a sense of how it works and the patterns that are established there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning. The second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. 
The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. We'll leave it there. You maybe have seen the the pattern uh, begin to emerge. If we want to think well about the intersection of science and and a biblical account like this, we need to be a bit clearer than we we maybe sometimes have been about what kind of writing uh, this is here in Genesis 1. I'll ask those of you who are scientists, does that read like a scientific account to you? Does that read like any, even GCSE, biology textbook? Is there a detailed schedule there of the chemical reactions, the biological processes that brought this world into being? Clearly not. Does that read not more like an artistic, a a literary representation of creation? Doesn't seem to even try to tell us how the world came to be. Majors (coughs) on who brought it into being. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1 represents the world as coming into being whenever God willed it. And we're shown a world that depends on God's will and his purpose and his presence. What about these six days then? What are we to make of them? That's a good Northern Ireland battleground still. Generally, people have thought of these in three different ways. Some people have understood them to be literal days, as you and I understand a day. Uh, Contrary to the findings of modern science, they they believe that God created the world in six 24-hour periods. But many people who who love God and believe the Bible no longer believe this. (coughs) They would say that although God could have done that, The evidence seems to be that that he didn't choose to do it that way. Secondly, some people understand the the six days here, the the word days to be rather loosely defined as some extended periods of time, perhaps millions of years in duration. And that would allow for the vast stretches of time suggested by the scientific research. That could be the case, but I would argue it still doesn't make the best sense of the Genesis 1 account. Thirdly, the six days of creation can be understood as structures uh, of a literary framework designed to illustrate the orderly nature of God's creation. And this is how I understand Genesis 1. A close examination of the six days reveals a really striking pattern. Uh, uh, Paul, if we could pop that slide up. I don't know if it'll come up for us. If you look, I've tried to capture in one slide uh, a structure of the six days of creation. So in the first three days, God brings structure or form to that which is formless. You've got to look at verse 2, where we're told what the world was like before God began his work. We're told there are two things about it, that it was formless, that is, it lacked structure, and that it was empty. 
And what we find then in the six days of creation is that we're told that God tackles the formlessness of the world in days one, two, and three. And then he tackles the emptiness and he fills that newly structured world. So he separates light from darkness on day one, sky from sea on day two, and sea from land on day three. And then on the fourth day, he begins to, to, to fill out that, that area of light and darkness with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And when, when you begin to see this pattern, you begin to see that the six days aren't, uh, aren't in chronological order. If the, the logical or chronological order was important, then surely the lights would have been created on day one. Or, or, or even before, before light itself was born, the, the sun, moon, and stars would have been created, or else simultaneously. So we begin to see that this isn't a chronological, blow-by-blow blow account of how God created the world. We see instead that it's a beautifully written, artistic account. It's not concerned with chronolo- chronology, with chemical reactions, biological processes. It's a beautiful account about how a mighty God brought meaning to the chaos and filled the emptiness of our world and how everything he did was good. For the record, I believe that God created the world as we know it and that he used some kinds of uh, processes of natural selection along the way. So in that sense, I'm happy to say that I believe in evolution. But I don't believe that evolutionary processes are ultimate and that they got us to where we are today on their own terms. In his commentary on Genesis 1 to 11, David Atkinson puts it like this. If evolution is elevated to the status of a worldview of the way things are, then there's a direct conflict with biblical faith. But if evolution remains at the level of scientific biological hypothesis, it would seem that there's little reason for conflict between the implications of Christian belief in the creator and the scientific explorations of the way which, at the level of biology, God has gone about his creative processes. Let me finish uh, for this evening. It's a pretty common thing, and I certainly don't want to, to make light of it, it's a pretty common thing in the modern world to struggle with the idea of the intervention uh, of God into the natural order. Miracles are hard to believe in. Flick with me for a second to Matthew chapter 28. It's on page 1001. In Matthew 28, we're told of the experience of the apostles when they were confronted with a a real-life miracle. They met the risen Jesus on a mountainside in Galilee. And Matthew tells us in verse 17, 
So there on page 1001, when they saw him, that is, when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I think that's a, a remarkable admission uh, for Matthew. He's a, a biographer of Jesus Christ. He is, has written his gospel so that we will uh, know of Jesus and his early followers. And here he is, honest enough to say, some people saw it and, and couldn't believe. I think Matthew's passage shows a couple of interesting things. I think it serves as a useful warning for us uh, not, not to imagine that ancient people were somehow naive, uh, that they were more easily sucked in by miracles than we are, that they were somehow predisposed to seeing dead people coming back, walking down the street. They knew as well as we know that when a person's dead, they don't come back. That's why they didn't believe. Some believed, we're told, and some didn't. The most interesting thing about the passage, though, is what it says about the purpose of biblical miracles. They're, they're there not, not simply to lead to, to belief, rational belief, but to worship, awe, and wonder. We're told that when they saw him, they worshipped him. <coughs> Jesus' miracles, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to think about this very much, they're, they're not magic tricks to try and, and show people, you know, here's, here's me and who's like me. You can't stand in the face of my awesome miracles. You never see Jesus pointing at a tree saying, see that tree over there? Watch it burst into flame. He doesn't do any of that stuff. Do you remember what his miracles were? Sick people made well. Hungry people fed. And dead people brought to life. Tim Keller says that we modern people tend to think of miracles as a suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be a restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God didn't originally make the world to have disease, hunger and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem the world where it's wrong and to heal it where it's broken. His miracles weren't just proofs that he has power, but wonderful foretastes of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles weren't just challenges to our minds, but a promise to our hearts. The world that we all want is coming. 